COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, continues to impact our lives in unprecedented ways, and that includes the nuclear industry. While the nukesters are busy cranking out PR talking points about how wonderfully they are doing and pushing for big bailout money from Congress, they are proposing longer work days for necessary staff and having online workers shelter in place at reactors for the foreseeable and unforeseeable future. Well, when faced with this contagion of pro-nuclear talking points, it takes a genuine nuclear expert like Arnie Gunderson to definitively point out. What they're going to have to do is push people to work more hours. And people don't work well. You may think you're as good at 12 hours as you were on the first hour on the job, but you're not. You're more likely to make mistakes. So all of this is increasing the risk that nuclear power presents. Not any single one necessarily is a deal breaker, but when you've got you know tired people cooped up together, not the right skill levels because some people are hospitalized or, or at home or whatever, the net effect is that for an operating nuke, the risk is higher than it would be with a full staff uh, under normal conditions. And there is so much more he has to say. When you hear something like that from Arnie Gunderson, a person with more than 45 years of nuclear power engineering experience, you know that the nuclear industry does not have a reasonable handle on their problems, that they are putting all of us at even higher risk, and that COVID-19 is just one more factor contributing to that awful, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, the next in our ongoing series of special updates on the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, and its impact upon the nuclear industry, nuclear reactors, and our safety. We will talk with Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. Since the start of the Fukushima disaster in 2011, they have been a steady, reliable source of honest data and information on a wide range of nuclear issues, and today is no exception. We'll cover what's wrong with the nuclear industry's planned refueling outages, the likelihood that workers at reactor sites can social distance, and other short-sighted so-called fixes the nukesters are trying to ram into the media flow. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness. This one's a real doozy. 
and more honest nuclear information than really any of us want to think about these days, except that we do, because nukes are not going anywhere, and with social isolation, neither are we. And all of this will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 13, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Citing an article put out by Linda Pence Gunter at beyondnuclearinternational.org, it was no surprise really when the first to line up with outstretched palms as Congress debated and formulated the now-passed $2 trillion coronavirus-prompted emergency relief bill that the nuclear corporations were right there with their hands out. The Nuclear Energy Institute, the lobbying arm of the nuclear power industry, rushed off a letter to congressional leaders asking for a 30% tax credit and waivers for existing regulatory fees. Friends of the Earth joined the chorus accusing the nuclear power industry of exhibiting, quote, disaster capitalism at its worst. According to various newspaper accounts, not only is the industry asking for that money, but it is simultaneously stockpiling food, beds, laundry, and other supplies for workers. At the same time, they have announced that they will no longer be allowing the release of information as to how many workers have either become sick or have tested positive at any nuclear site in the country. Nuclear power generation is not currently an essential industry because COVID-19 has reduced the load of what is needed in this country and there is currently an energy glut. So what they are putting out is a false narrative. While as of March 27th, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission revealed that it will not be publicly reporting COVID incidents at U.S. nuclear power stations. And while we do know that as of March 27, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has revealed that it will not be publicly reporting COVID-19 incidents at U.S. nuclear power stations, we do know that At Diablo Canyon Power Plant in Northern California, Pacific Gas and Electric has asked all but essential employees to telecommute or just stay home. At the Fermi 2 nuclear reactor in Michigan on the shores of Lake Erie, owner DTE Energy is asking to delay repair work inside the reactor that was previously deemed necessary asking to wait for the next refueling outage, which could be in 18 months to two years. We'll have more on Fermi, too, and all the COVID connection with nuclear on this week's featured interview. But now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, numbnuts on a week. A different kind of numbnuts. This morning... I caught a post on Facebook from George Takei. You would probably know him as the man who played Sulu on the original Star Trek TV series. In this post, he proudly wrote of being honored to be chosen as the final torchbearer for the 2021 Olympics, the one who would run around the stadium and then climb the stairs to light the eternal flame. I caught this story at the last minute while I was in production and quickly overthrew my previously selected numbnuts of the week because, man, nothing could top this one. And I loaded it up with all the rage and 
vitriol and sarcasm that I could possibly put into my voice. I even promoted it as part of my social media posts about the show once I was putting it up. But only a short time ago, after the show was long out on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media, sent out to all the distributors, only then did I discover that this was George Takei's April Fool's joke. Well, ha, ha, Sulu. That post was really tone deaf, if you understand anything about the people from Fukushima and what they have been going through in light of the Olympic torch relay and all the rest. And it was so horrible and such a really brilliant manipulation of loyalties that it seemed believable to those of us who understand exactly how venal Prime Minister Abe, the International Olympic Committee, and the PR minion that's been putting together their campaign to convince everybody that the Olympics are fine and Fukushima is fine, Dentsu Public Relations, how horrific all of those entities can be. It seemed realistic. Well, yuck, yuck, Sulu. I fell for the hoax. And maybe because of me, a lot of other people did too. My sincerest apologies to all. And that's why this week, I, Libby Halevi, the producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, am unfortunately, and with mud on my face, this week's Nuclear Hot Seat, none that's out of week. Here's this week's featured interview. The nuclear industry is both touting its plans to keep the nukes running and covering up its numbers of six coronavirus positive and absent workers. What does that mean regarding our nuclear safety? To find out with some specificity, I contacted two of the best informed people that we've got in order to get a read on what's really the truth. Arnie Gunderson has more than 45 years of nuclear power engineering experience. He holds a nuclear safety patent, was a licensed reactor operator, and is a former nuclear industry senior vice president. During his nuclear power industry career, Arnie managed and coordinated projects at 70-70 nuclear power plants in the U.S. Maggie Gunderson founded Fairwinds Energy Education, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and did so in 2008. Its mission has remained to educate the public about nuclear power production, engineering, reliability, and safety issues. She also has a history as well as expertise within the nuclear power industry. Together, these two experts on the nuclear industry have a powerful perspective on COVID-19's impact on the operation of nuclear reactors. We spoke on Sunday, March 29, 2020. Arnie Gunderson? And Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, thank you so much for being with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for hosting us. Arnie, you have actually worked inside of a nuclear reactor. Give us a sense of what that would mean in terms of social distancing, in terms of the ability to work the reactor safely, in terms of people being able to do remote work on a nuclear reactor. Is such a thing even possible? You know, there's a whole bunch of engineers and essentially a bullpen, and uh, there's no way that 
of practicing social distance. As a matter of fact, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has two inspectors on every site, and now they're working remotely. So your cop is working from home because they're afraid of the, the health of their workers. It's really crowded for the engineers. And in a lot of these maintenance activities, it's really crowded as well. The plant is huge. And, you know, if you spread all people out, it's, it's no big deal. But they're working on a spot. And you may have four or five people within four or five feet of each other. So it's impossible to social distance when you're working on a problem inside a nuke. And how feasible is it for people to operate that nuclear reactor by, as it were, phoning it in, doing distance work on it? It's impossible. The NRC has two requirements for staff. You have to have five reactor operators in the control room at any one time. And you have to have 10 guards on duty at any one time. But other than that, the NRC has no requirement on staff levels. But there's obviously beyond the operators and beyond the guards, there's, they have to maintain it. And there's a large maintenance staff. And you can't phone in maintenance. You know, you can't repair a valve by watching it in your living room. So what very well may happen is that as the staffs deplete from the virus, keeping people home from work for a couple of weeks or a month, the talented people, the people that have experience on something, won't be available. And then inexperienced people will have to continue to do those tasks. So, you know, an NRC-required maintenance operation, for instance. So there won't be enough people to do all the things that are necessary. And their skill level may be diminished because people get sick and will be at home. The NRC is saying, or the industry is saying, that they plan to expand their facilities so that perhaps people can shelter in place, the engineers can shelter in place at the actual nuclear reactors in order to allow them a certain amount of safety. At least that is their supposition. How feasible is that? I think that's infeasible for several reasons. Because COVID incubates anywhere from two to 14 days. If they'd started this earlier, they could have protected their people, but now these people could have been exposed in a myriad of ways and they may then get quarantined on the site, but get really sick. And then the people that they're working with in these pods of workers will also get contaminated. I think they didn't take the appropriate steps in time. And my concern runs more along the lines of Fukushima. I think you might have heard Arnie talk about when Fukushima meltdowns occurred, that if it had happened 12 hours later, the plant would have been on a weekend schedule where hardly any employees were there. And that would have meant there were not enough employees to even handle what they had to handle. And that's still my concern, that if they reduce staff that far and then it hit a whole bunch of people at once because they are working in close proximity initially. And then if it must, they get sick, who's going to help them? And where's the experience and where's the depth and are there enough employees? And are people well enough to go out and do some of the mechanical repairs that have to be done at times if there's a crisis on site? You know, and the other part of that is that the, um, there's two pieces. One, 
Can you imagine staying at work if your family is sick at home? It doesn't make sense to me that you can count on locking somebody into a facility. The second part of that was that the talent pool is diminished. I have one other thing I'd like to add in there. Our daughter's an emergency room trauma nurse. And what they're seeing as COVID expands is that the cases that come into the hospital are worse. So you have to look at that. As the virus increases, maybe the first people who got it were a little more sensitive, but they got an easy case. But now it's more intense or because so many people, more people have it, they're seeing so many more. And again, you can't tell when someone has it. You could go two weeks and be designated clear and then come down with it. A nuclear sub just put out to sea and after it was at sea, they discovered that COVID was on board. So, you know, living in tight quarters, there's an example that it it doesn't work very well. So what they're going to have to do is push people to work more hours. And people don't work well. You may think you're as good at 12 hours as you were on the first hour on the job, but you're not. You're more likely to make mistakes. So all of this is increasing the risk that nuclear power presents. Not any single one necessarily is a deal breaker, but when you've got you know tired people cooped up together, not the right skill levels because some people are either hospitalized or, or at home or whatever. The net effect is that for an operating nuke, the risk is higher than it would be with a full staff uh, under normal conditions. Last week on the show, I was able to report that there were either confirmed cases of COVID-19 or people who were suspected of having it and were being tested at various nuclear facilities around the country, including Y-12 and also at Hanford. Since then, the announcement has come, I forget if it's through the NRC or through Nuclear Energy Institute, that they will no longer be reporting on whether anybody on site has been sick or is being suspected of being sick and being tested. What's your response to that? It's sort of par for the course, but you know, I could add another one to the list, by the way. The Vogel plant in uh, Georgia is already experiencing an outbreak of COVID. Now, that plant's not operating yet, but you know, it has to happen. That We shouldn't be surprised when uh, your local nuke gets some people on the staff that have COVID, and over time, it spreads throughout the facility. It has to happen. It would be nice if we, the public, knew that, and I can't understand why that's somehow considered top secret, but hey, uh, it's inevitable. We were talking with Dave Lockbaum, who's former member of Union of Concerned Scientists, and we had a group discussion about this very issue. He reported to us that Johns Hopkins had done a study about being awake for 11 hours and how that straight in a job, you know, and I always get concerned about that because our daughter worked these 12-hour emergency room shifts, you know, and there was a study that equated impairment to a blood alcohol level of 0.04 when you're, you're awake and working intensely for that many hours. Then there are two other studies, and he sent me the copies of these studies that show that 15 to 17 hours awake equates to a blood alcohol level of 0.05%. 
So, you know, there's a concern. Not only are these guys going to get COVID eventually because it's, you know, there's, it's such a tight area. And the rate is one third of Americans are anticipated to get it. So when you look at that, and then you put in the fact of them being locked up on site and working these extensive long hours, it's going to lessen their ability to perform. And there are medical schools that have brought this data and studied it, brought it forward. That blood alcohol content is roughly equivalent to having a beer. You know, and you're really not in top form after 11 hours you've you've had a beer. There's one other thing on these operating nukes, not the ones under refueling, but the operating nukes that's important. They are required to do certain inspections by the NRC. And they will devote the whatever staff they have to meet those NRC requirements. Now, if there's not enough staff after that, they won't do other things that are in what's called the corrective action program. Now, those things are components that are broken or wearing out, known to be near failure, but not required by the NRC yet. So again, when you don't have the staff to do all the things that you were doing in the course of a week and you're deferring some of that maintenance, you're increasing the risk to the public. You mentioned refueling. In 2020, 56 of the nation's 98 nuclear reactors are scheduled to have refueling. Given the impact of COVID 19, what is the potential for this to take place at all, let alone take place safely and securely? Well, a nuclear plant has to refuel because it will run out of uranium. And refuelings occur right at the cusp of when they start to run out of uranium. So they have to close. But there's nothing in regulation that says they have to be closed for three and a half months or three and a half weeks. The average nuclear outage takes about 26 days, a little less than a month. And the managers are tied to bonuses. I got to look at these bonus programs on a project I was working on. And the plant manager is making around 300 or 350,000 a year. And he gets a 30% bonus if he gets his outage done in time. Well, 30% of $300,000 is $100,000. So these plant managers have a huge financial incentive to get that out. It's done. You work your way down into the ranks. Lower level people are in 20% and 10% bonuses. So if they get the outage done in 27 days, some people will walk away with five or 10,000. Some people will walk away with 50,000. And the senior guys will work, walk away with $100,000. So there's not any incentive to do it right. The incentive is to do it fast. How much, if any, additional staff is needed for this? I've seen some rather large numbers of people who would have to be brought in from off-site in order to accomplish the work. About 1,000 people for about a month. Which, again, brings up that whole issue of social distancing. Uh, You can't bring 1,000 people into a plant that normally has 400 and expect them to maintain social distance. So the other part of that is the odds are that 20 or 30 of them will come with the virus or won't be able to come because they have the virus. 
The net effect is, one, the nuclear industry is buying protective clothing, gloves, face masks, the whole bit. And they've actually asked the president to prioritize nuclear outages in front of nurses. So to me, there's no load right now. Electric generation in America is well in excess of what we're using because the country shut down. So there's no need for these power plants to, to start up rapidly. And yet they're making the argument to the president that they deserve you know, the booties and the gloves and the respirators more so than the, uh, the nurses do. In France, EDF has announced after there were some walkouts by engineers who said that they didn't feel that their safety was being taken care of in the proper way. They have said that they're going to have more gloves, more sanitation. And the specific piece that there was concern about is a mechanism for measuring radiation after a shift that everybody has to walk through. It's like a shower stall, and they have to strip down to their undies and walk through to be checked. And the engineers were saying that they did not believe that it was safe for them to walk through this because of the possibility of contamination. Now EDF is saying, oh, well, we're taking care of that. We will now clean it twice per eight-hour shift. That's not adequate. It's definitely not adequate in any way level. Our daughter has... She's been researching this as a trauma nurse and researching it with her colleagues. And they look at all the fresh data that comes out. And the six-foot social distancing actually is not enough. It's clear now. uh, Medical papers have already and reports have already shown that actually the safest social distancing is 30 feet. And it's phenomenal amount of material. Also, when someone breathes really heavily or there's moisture, so the showers, when they're showered down, there's there's moisture and there, that any of the virus is aerolized and volatilized. So it spreads further and it increases in some of the isolation rooms in hospitals. They find from people being on oxygen the volatilization, the aerolizing of the virus increases what's in the room to 66%. And then even though that's an isolation room that's airtight, when the door is open, it's getting into the outside hospital ventilation system. So how would this not impact these men walking through these showers? If they're only going to clean it every eight hours, it's impossible. They're going to funnel them all through this area that if one person has COVID, that's going to be there. You know, I've been through these, they call them radiation portals, and it's about the size of a door. It's a metal frame. It's exactly like old metal detectors at an airport. You know, you walk through this frame, and they look for metal. Well, these things, you stand in the frame, and you hold your hands up against the sidewalls, and it, it has a little fan, and it sucks the air off your hands and measures radiation. Well, if you've got COVID cooties on your hands, it's going to suck that out and be on the frame for the next person through. So, I mean, unless you're cleaning that frame every person, hell, I've been in um, Whole Foods and Whole Foods is cleaning the handles on the parts every time somebody comes in. That's the way to do it. But what that will do is if you take that amount of time at those radiation portals, you'll have a long line And if you have six or 20 foot spacing between the people, 
you'll have a line way out, out, you know, into the contaminated area. So it's not, I don't like the French answer. It's wrong. You can't clean something like that every four hours. On the other hand, if you were to do that, then you're going to wind up with long lines and people infecting each other. So there's no good solution except take your time. You know, slow down this refueling outage. There's no need for the power. The only people getting rich are the managers who are on a bonus. Just take your time. You know, there's, a, there's an example in Detroit right now. Fermi 2 is the largest Mark 1 boiling water reactor in the world. Mark 1 is like Fukushima. Twice as big as Fukushima, Fermi 2. And they committed to painting the torus, that's that round donut at the bottom of the, of the reactor, because the paint was falling off and clogging the pump suctions that are needed in the event of an emergency. They committed to do that. And they somehow they said, well, give us 18 months. And the NRC gave me 18 months. It ends in April. So they have to paint the tours. And now with COVID, they're saying, well, we don't have the staff. We'll just put little patches on the walls where we see paint peeling, but we won't paint the whole new tours. And because they don't want to do it properly, they'd rather do it fast. They're risking the health and welfare of, of Detroit. It sounds like there are many ways that maintenance and safety fixes can be and are being delayed at nuclear reactors. One of them that Ed Lyman, who you mentioned earlier, talked about was that there was an inspection of North Carolina's reactor, McGuire 2, and a pressure vessel head was found to be in degraded condition at one of the control rod nozzles. Presumably it was cracking. How dangerous is this kind of a situation? That's really dangerous. Um, your old-time listeners might remember Davis Bessie back in the, I think it was 2003, where one of the control rod nozzles had cracking, and they were within about two or three weeks of blowing the control rod into the building and having all of the reactor coolant exit as well. And so when you have that, they found it is good. They found it before it became uh, worse. But what concerns me is that how many inspections are they kicking the can down the road and saying, hey, we need to get this plan up and running in 30 days. We can worry about that 18 months from now. And to my way of thinking, that's, that's wrong. There's no need for the power. And there's nothing in regulation that the NRC has to commit to uh, about a 30-day outage. In the nuclear industry, they call these short outages trophy outages. And nobody needs a trophy outage right now. There's enough stress in society without somebody pushing a nuke too far. There is also a great push by the nuclear industry at this time to have more of the bailout, to have a greater amount of money at the same time that it seems that the nuclear regulatory, based on a conference call they had a week ago Friday, is putting much more of the discretionary decision-making in the hands of the nuclear industry. Long-term, what's wrong with this picture? The industry does not like to regulate itself. It does not. And when you have 
a corporation regulating itself. You have, for example, in California, the fires that happened from PG&E not trimming properly and not upgrading the lines as they could have and should have. Or you have the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactor. Let's look at that one where the equipment is so old, the plant shouldn't even be running. It's still analog equipment. If it fails, there aren't any replacements even available. Diablo Canyon has said, because it has so many other costs, and this is part of why PG&E filed for its bankruptcy, that they don't have the money to do the upgrades and the corrective actions that they were supposed to have done for years. And Arnie did a whole report that was the that was filed. Fairwinds did the report filed with the California Public Utilities Control that shows thing after thing after thing that hasn't been repaired. I mean, even the doors don't close correctly. Now, let me give you a, a different example than that. It's Boeing and the 737 MAX. That's exactly the argument Boeing made with the FAA. You know, we can self-regulate. It's in our best, to our advantage, to not have a plane fall out of the sky. So therefore, we're going to do it right. And they also put a lot of pressure on the FAA through their congressmen and senators. And the net effect was that the FAA backed off and two airplanes crashed in less than a year. So this issue of of self-regulating being a good capitalist would make sure that it's safe because it's good for the business. Well, what's good for the business in the long haul is not good for the managers in the short haul because they're all on bonuses tied to stock price increases or whatever. The, The net effect is that this is an industry that needs more regulation as these plants get older, not less. And one more part to that. You said you were talking about what the bailouts are and that they're looking for bailouts. Well, the industry is always looking for bailouts. The nuclear industry wants the taxpayers to cover everything for them. That's why plants like Bogle, which isn't finished yet, or VC Summer, which has been officially shut now in South Carolina and uh, was under construction is nothing but a hole in the ground and left all South Carolina people with all these extra fees. They did CWIP, construction work in progress. So they're billing for people, people now who are never going to see this power are paying for it. And they're like Vogel, years behind their deadlines. And now how, what are they going to be saying? They're, they want more things, more money right now, bailout money to be. And just because they're how many years over budget, are they? No, they're five or six years behind schedule and double what they claimed they were going to cost. You know, there's a big pot of money there. Uh, There's a a headline in the New York Times talking about, you know, there's $2.2 trillion that the feds are going to be giving away. And um, the lobbyists are salivating. And that's not just the people that need it, but it's cruise ship lobbyists or nuclear power lobbyists. If they can divert a couple billion out of two trillion, hey, nobody's gonna notice it. It's wrong and that money would better be going to ventilators for our daughter, the nurse, than it is for uh, corporate bailouts. If, heaven forbid, there was a mishap, let's use that mild term on it, at a nuclear reactor, what would happen? 
especially with the pressure that's on first responders these days with COVID-19, what kind of response would be required and how likely is it that it could actually happen appropriately? I don't think it could happen appropriately. Let me take the look from South Carolina. Before our daughter became an emergency trauma nurse, she was an EMT, well, paramedic, full paramedic with Charleston County EMS. And that's a big outfit. They had radiation detectors on their rigs, all the rigs. And so I was really thrilled that they had that when she first joined them. But none of them were ever trained in how to use it. No one looked at those. No one looked at calibration. No one taught, taught the team how to use it. They have no gear. If there's a mishap, if there's radiation release, if there's, heaven forbid, a meltdown or something like that, the crews have nothing to protect them. They don't have any of the suits that they need. They have no decimeters. They have nothing. Then on top of that, most of them have been told to this date that if they go out on sick leave right now, they have to take that out of their PTO, their personal time off bank, and that they cannot say that it's work-related because who knows how they picked up COVID. The EMS squads are being told, first responders are being told they can't access workman's comp because everybody's being exposed to COVID-19 and they could have gotten it from their families or the community. So if they go out, they have to use their own personal time off to get well. And then they're being exposed all the time and they don't have the right gear either. They don't have the spacesuits that you're seeing at the test sites None of them have the right gear to even respond to COVID, let alone to go out to a nuclear debacle and and try and respond there when they haven't been trained. It's absurd. So the the emergency response system is already stressed to the limit. And if there's another emergency, it's going to snap. Can you imagine taking people who should be 20 feet apart or even six feet apart and putting them all in a high school gym Because that's the evacuation point, plus the fact, like Maggie said, that all these EMS people are already stressed to the max. I think one more insult to the system would cause it to snap. Paul Gunter was on the show last week, and he pointed out that there is a huge contradiction between shelter in place for COVID-19 and should it come to pass a nuclear accident in the area, which means, you know, get out of Dodge as quickly as you can, and that the two are mutually exclusive from each other, and which one do you follow? Can I reframe something for a minute? We never use the term that there's a nuclear accident. We'll use calamity, debacle, disaster, because how can it be an accident when the nuclear industry forecasts the risk and says that to produce electricity, and a certain number of people will get sick or die, and that's okay. That's the risk forecasts. I will change my language accordingly. Thank you for that correction. We've just reframed it because the term accident is something that the nuclear industry loves. Oh, it's like a owl hit the windshield when you're driving, or a tree fell across the highway in a terrible storm. That's an accident. But when you know that every so many years, every so many days of operation, there's a higher risk of a nuclear plant having a meltdown or a major radiation release, 
and you're going to take that chance that this much electricity to the public justifies this risk, that's not an accident. That's probabilistic risk assessment and playing with the value of, of people's lives. Thank you for that course correction. Arnie, I believe there was something that you wish to add about bonuses and also if there's anything else that you would like to add at this time. There's two things, and bonuses are certainly top of the list. When we lived up in Vermont, I had a chance to talk to a really senior guy in NRC Region 1 about the bonus structure that the people of Vermont Yankee and, and every single utility around the country works under. And, you know, as I discussed, some of these guys are walking away with 100 grand a year in bonuses. So the NRC's position is they don't look at salary structure at all. And I said to him, you know, if an expedited refueling outage causes a a disaster, and the reason for the expedited outage was that somebody stood to make 100 grand, don't you think that's safety related? And their response to me was, well, after the fact, if we determine that a bonus stood in the way of adequate safety precautions, we'll take action. And my response to them was, well, that's fine. As the, as the nuclear core is floating down the Hudson River, you're going to take action. Isn't that a little bit too late? The second thing, and, and it's almost laughable, but the federal government is saying that the coronavirus is showing why we need to have all our uranium come from inside the United States. And right now, only 10% of our uranium comes from the United States. Most comes from Australia and Canada, Kazakhstan, and the mine in the U.S. is owned by Russia. So in any event, uh, the uranium mining industry is trying to get more uranium mining in the U.S. But from the time the uranium comes out of the ground to the time it ultimately gets into the nuclear reactor is about three years. And they're saying, well, we need to be energy independent. We need to keep all this uranium. It would be an ecological disaster here in America. And financially, the reason we're going off to Australia or Canada or Kazakhstan is because it's cheaper. So the the net effect is that the American government is now saying, now picking up the exact same tune of the American mining industry, saying that, you know, we don't want worldwide illness to imperil our supply of uranium. When that supply train is three years long, and it would be much more expensive to do it from uh, another source, it makes absolutely no sense. But it is this administration kowtowing to the Western mining interests. And in addition to that, most of the uranium land that exists in the U.S. is on native sites. And so that is just supposed to be a justification to allow this administration to say, oh yeah, it's just the Dakota pipeline was fine. Now reopening this native area to mining, even though they don't want it and they have a right to choose what happens in their, their lands to override that and take executive privilege to do that is an executive order is disgusting. And also, isn't there currently a glut of uranium that has already been mined that is stockpiled? So we really don't need the stuff or any more of it. 
Right. We don't need more of it. And then if we really wanted to be honest about it, a lot of the utilities that are asking for these privileges and, and asking for this and siding with the mining industry are the same utilities that have blocked solar and wind in their states. You know, there's all kinds of new technology now. And with the battery power, we can get so much more out of solar and wind. And it's, it's like Arnie said when he spoke at Northwestern University. Yeah, my quote was, the nuclear industry would have you believe that they are smart enough to figure out a way to store nuclear waste for a quarter of a million years. But the same industry would have you believe that we, the remaining people, are so dumb we can't figure out a way of storing solar electricity overnight. You know, I think that COVID virus shows that what we really need is a distributed energy grid. You know, a 21st century grid would be much more resilient than having these big power plants that were forced to refuel all the time. With a distributed grid with little sources of power everywhere, it would be a lot safer and a lot more people focused. We'd have small corporations and even individual towns or neighborhoods being their own generator. So I actually think uh, it's a lot more democratic process to have a distributed grid. And the COVID crisis says, why do we need to rely on these huge power plants when we could make thousands of smaller ones cheaper? One example of that would be, there's a program in Georgia that's called SOS, Solar on Schools. And the Georgia schools, the school districts are paying that CWIP that I mentioned earlier. They're paying this construction work and process for these new plants at Bogle. They're having to be penalized. Instead, if they put solar on schools, which has been blocked by the utilities, they could produce almost all the electricity they need for the schools and save considerable money. And then the tax funding could be used to actually teach the kids and not for heating and air conditioning and and lights and whatever else they need in that school district because that electricity would be produced by, by solar and battery backups. This has been an extraordinary conversation. Know that as we move forward with the one known crisis and hopefully not the other coming from nuclear, that I wish the two of you safety, health, your daughter as well, especially your daughter. And I want to thank you, Arnie Gunderson, Maggie Gunderson, for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks. Thank you. That was Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. You can find them online at fairwinds.org, and Fairwinds is spelled with an E, F-A-I-R-E, winds.org. Activist, activist, shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out. What is the nuclear weapons industry depriving us of in terms of protection from COVID-19? Leave it to the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons to have crunched the numbers and come up with the following. The annual cost for U.S. nuclear weapons is $35.1 billion. That's billion with a B. That translates into the equivalent of 300,000 beds in intensive care. 35,000 ventilators, 150,000 nurses, 
and 75,000 doctors. Wouldn't that just go a great distance towards giving us a better chance at beating this novel coronavirus? Or is it more important to the United States you just be able to nuke everybody and kill them all off at the same time? I know which way I'm leaning on that one. And in that vein, Washington Against Nuclear Weapons, or WANWCoalition.org, is asking for your help in demanding that nuclear modernization funding be diverted to respond to the COVID crisis to help frontline nuclear communities survive. They make the point that individuals and communities impacted by the research, development, testing, and production of nuclear weapons often have so many underlying factors which magnify their risks, including radioactive and toxic chemical exposures, air and water pollution, poverty, poor nutrition, and institutionalized racism. This can all provide the background for a weakened immune system of members of communities on the front lines of the nuclear system. Veterans and civilians exposed to radiation through above-ground nuclear testing, uranium miners, residents near abandoned mines and waste sites, and those who worked in nuclear production sites. The exposed populations are disproportionately from indigenous communities, communities of color, low-income or rural communities, and often face significant barriers to receiving adequate health care. The Washington Against Nuclear Weapons Coalition is asking for your support by either calling or writing to your member of Congress. We'll have a copy of a sample script available for you on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 458. Please let your voices be heard. And for those of you who remain concerned about Three Mile Island near Harrisburg in Pennsylvania, having just passed the 41st anniversary of this nation's worst commercial nuclear power accident there, the public is being given the chance to weigh in on the proposed transfer of the stricken Three Mile Island Unit 2 reactor to energy solutions. There are a lot of moving parts on this one, and we will have a link up first to an article by Dan Miller of the Press and Journal that will explain it to you, and also a copy of a script you can follow, be it through a phone call or a letter or an email that you write. All will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and this episode is number 458. Here's today's final thought. The big pro-nuke talking point that the nuclear industry and its PR hacks and flacks have settled on is, we keep the lights on. They are ramming that thought through every press release they send out, trying to make it seem like they are concerned, caring, and operating in our collective best interests. But as you heard from today's interview with Arnie and Maggie Gunderson, they are definitely not acting in our best interest. They're not even making a lot of sense. With the reduced need for electricity, we are generating more than we need. As you heard on last week's show from Kevin Camps and Paul Gunderson of Beyond Nuclear, some nuclear reactors could easily be shut down with absolutely no impact to local power supplies, and then the healthy workers could be moved to other reactors that have more immediate and growing needs. So here we go with another nuclear exaggeration, spin, info massage, or bald-faced lie, take your pick, 
and it is taking hold in the societal hypnosis of we need more nukes, we need more nukes, when the truth is that we don't need more nukes. And this carefully focused, grouped, and honed talking point could be setting us up for something far, far worse. Not that it's imminent or even likely, but should the lights go out, it will not be the end of the world. However, if an understaffed, overworked, sick nuclear workforce starts making mistakes, it could create the end of the world in a far more deadly way than even COVID-19. A radiation release would nuke our DNA, our genetic history and future. And once our DNA has been compromised, it may take a few generations, but then it's bye-bye humanity. And let's hope that more than the cockroaches survive here on Earth. So when you hear the media parroting that talking point, we're keeping the lights on, challenge it. Send an email, make a call, an appropriate social media post, whatever you've got, use it. And in the highly unlikely chance that the nukes shut down and then at some point the lights do go out, I, for one, will not curse the dark. I'll light a candle and be grateful that the light that it sheds has absolutely nothing to do with nuclear. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 31st, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, asahi.com, wanwcoalition.org, pressandjournal.com, commondreams.org, powermag.com, neutronbytes.com, seattletimes.com, patch.com, bloomberg.com, newstimessl.com, telegraph.co.uk, marianwildart.wordpress.com, ed lyman, paul gunter, ToledoBlade.com, BusinessInsider.com, The Lying Spin Masters at World Nuclear News, and the Absent Without Leave Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to listeners around the world who keep me informed as to what the nuclear situation looks like from their perspective. And a big happy shout-out to Pam Mole, one of the crew of volunteers who post Nuclear Hot Seat on social media around the world as she welcomes her newest grandchild, Thomas Elliott, born just this morning. Thomas, it's a crazy world at a crazy time. But hey, new life is always worth celebrating, and you've got a terrific grandma. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is now available on all your favorite podcast platforms. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe. An even easier step is to go to our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down to the yellow opt-in box, put in your name and email address, and you will get one email a week that has the connection to this week's show and a little bit of information about it. We're also going to be adding easy-to-copy and paste social media posts for Facebook and Twitter, so you can be part of helping us get the information out. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red donate button, and send a donation of any size to us. We will really be grateful for your support. 
This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you to stay inside, take all precautions, and tell those you love that you love them. Because, hey, none of us knows how long we have, how long this thing will last. So share the good part of yourself, the sweet spot of your heart, and do it now. There you go. You have just had your marching orders, your nuclear wake-up call. So now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. yellow opt-in box, put in your name and email address, and you will get one email a week that has the connection to this week's show and a little bit of information about it. We're also going to be adding easy-to-copy-and-paste social media posts for Facebook and Twitter, so you can be part of helping us get the information out. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red donate button, and send a donation of any size to us. We will really be grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you to stay inside, take all precautions, and tell those you love that you love them. Because, hey, none of us knows how long we have, how long this thing will last. So share the good part of yourself, the sweet spot of your heart, and do it now. There you go. You have just had your marching orders, your nuclear wake-up call. So now, don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.